Good morning, church. So I've been notified uh, Paola is here today with her new baby, Daniel. So if you see them around. And uh, big brother Jacob is particularly excited. So if you see a boy just kind of jumping out of his skin, that's why. Uh, I wanted to mention one thing that's not in your bulletin. Uh, Wednesday, October 5th, mark down your calendars, we're going to have a dessert and coffee with our missionaries, Larry and Susan Soleil. They're with Wycliffe Bible Translators, so you won't want to miss that. It'll be a really great opportunity for us to engage with uh, partners of ours. When, when you put money in that offering plate or if you give online, a portion of that, a significant portion of that goes to partners all over the world who are seeking to advance the, the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus all around the world. And those, uh, those are some dear partners of ours. And it would be great for you to get to know them, uh, to meet them, to hear about their ministry. Uh, again, that's uh, Wednesday, October 5th. So get that on your calendars. Tom mentioned Community Day yesterday, and it was a great time. Uh, thank you for all of you who helped with that. Uh, we had some really great engagement with the community. Uh, we had a few con- good conversations, but uh, most of all, we, we gave out uh, a lot of information, uh, a lot of freeze pops. So there were a lot of happy kids out there in the, on, a, on a warm day in the community. So uh, at the very least, our community knows that we exist and that we love them. Uh, so praise God for that. One interesting thing this year that was different from past years, we've been doing our whiteboard question for uh, several years now. But this is the first year that so many people answered our question, what gives you hope? So many people answered that question, we had to erase our whiteboard and start over uh, because there wasn't enough room to uh, add more answers to the board. Uh, We didn't do that one time. We ended up doing it four or five times. We had to erase the entire board and just start over because there was not enough room for more answers. So praise God for that. Uh, And it was a a good tool for engaging our community uh, on, on, uh, on... that issue of hope and where does it come from. Okay, uh, let's get to the Word. We're in Micah chapter 7 today, and we're going to be wrapping it up next Sunday. So we're almost done with Micah, and then I'll be away for a week where uh, my wife and I will be attending a conference down in Kansas City, Missouri at the seminary where I'm currently taking classes online. So I'll be down there uh, with my wife for... Uh, two days uh, that week, and then we're going to be hopping a plane and heading to Florida, and we're going to uh, be attending a, well, I will anyway, a, a preaching workshop at the Bernie's Church down there on Sanibel Island. So really looking forward to that. Be in prayer uh, for me and for Jess as, as we're away uh, doing those things. Uh, Kevin Powers, Pastor Kevin from Calvary uh, Baptist, our sister church in Warwick, will be here on that Sunday. Uh, but you've got to Tolerate me for two more weeks, starting this this Sunday, and then you get Kevin for a week. But uh, how about this? You ever hear this? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Micah begins this final chapter in Micah with these words. Woe is me. Woe is me. These are not words of a pity party. Biblically, these words appropriately express grief and sorrow. And just think about everywhere we've come from to this point in the book of Micah. It's been tough. 
right? I mean, Micah says some hard things, uh, brings out some hard realities about, about our world, about the reality of, of sin in our world, not just in our world, but in our own hearts, and the judgment of God that comes as a result of that. And now we see these words, woe is me. Woe is me. It's one of the most powerful and emotive phrases that is used by biblical authors. Woe is me. This is the language of a widow at their spouse's funeral. This is the language of a mother who's lost a child. This is the language of a conquered nation. It's a phrase reserved for the most dire of circumstances. This is the type of writing called a lament in the Bible. And the Bible is no stranger to this type of literature. And this should give us comfort, knowing that the Bible does not ignore real life. The Bible does not look at life through rose-colored glasses. It doesn't ignore the wounds that we endure in this broken world. Instead, it draws near to them. I don't know if you realize this, but 60 of the 150 psalms in your Bible, 40% are categorized as laments. There's even an entire book in the Bible dedicated to this type of literature, appropriately called Lamentations. And one of the most well-known prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, was known for this. And it earned him the name, or the nickname rather, the Weeping Prophet. The Bible is honest about the human experience, and it doesn't settle for shallow or superficial when dealing with real life. Emmanuel Katongal and Chris Rice wrote a book called Reconciling All Things, and in it they write this, the first language of the church in a deeply broken world should not be strategy, but prayer. Lament is not despair either. It's a cry. It's a cry directed to God by those who see and who know and who feel the brokenness around them every day. And oftentimes laments are are paired with psalms of praise because of the hope that we have in the Lord in the midst of those times. This could be compared to the roller coaster of emotions felt at the death of a loved one who is now with Jesus. Your lament, you lament the separation of that loved one, but you rejoice knowing that they are with Jesus and that their suffering is ended. The other day I learned of a friend of mine uh, losing their mother. And I reached out to him via text just to say, hey, I'm praying for you, brother. And he replied with these words, hey, Mike, thanks so much for reaching out and for your prayers. We really appreciate it. What confidence we have in Christ 
our Savior. So he's, he's grieving, he's mourning, but you can see right there, by, based on his text, where he is on that roller coaster right now. He's, he's celebrating the fact that his mother is with Jesus, but that doesn't mean that the tears don't come and that the grief is not there. What is lamentable to you? And what language is available to you in dire times? Micah provides these words in chapter 7 for the people of his day to use as a lament for the devastation to come, the exile that they're going to be sent into as a nation for abandoning God. He writes these words for his nation to pray, to cry out to God. And how might you, like the people of Micah's day, lament for the brokenness of the times that we live in? It's appropriate. It's easy to look around at our world today and, and to get angry and to get upset. But it's appropriate to lament the brokenness of the times that we live in. Let's look now at our text. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 7. If you need a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 928. Once you're there, please stand with me out of reverence for God's word and follow along with me as I read. Woe is me, for I have become... As when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Job says these words, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. God's word is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful and effective. 
God, may your word and your spirit minister to our hearts, to our souls today. May these words be what we need to hear this morning to make us more like Jesus. Open our eyes. Open the eyes of our hearts. Cause the the dullness of our minds to pass like a fog. May it break. May our eyes see clearly your word for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so my first point here, there's lack of good fruit. After all the pronouncements in Micah, foretelling the the devastation and exile to come to Israel, here at the end of the book, Micah gives language for his people to use, to cry out to God. And it begins, as I mentioned earlier, with the words, Woe is me. Woe is me. This lament begins by acknowledging the reality of their desperate situation. And verse 1 provides a visual. God's people are like a vineyard and a fruit orchard. And when it's time for harvest, the farmer goes out to his fields and he's expecting to find fruit. But what does he find? He finds his fields are completely picked clean. There is nothing. He goes out expecting fruit and he finds nothing. You see, God had planted his people as a vineyard And we saw two weeks ago, when we looked at Micah 6.8, what it was that God was expecting from his field that he planted. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the fruit that God was expecting when he went out to his fields And he found none of it. God planted his people in this world to be a blessing to the world around them as they walked humbly with him, as they loved Hesed kindness, and as they did justice. And so the visual here is of of God going to his vineyard, expecting good fruit, and finding the fields bare. Verse 2 says, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. But there's an interesting thing here. The word godly that's used in the Hebrew here, it's the same root word as the word hesed that's been an emphasis in Micah. So you could read this, this, this verse here as people of hesed have perished from the earth. How might you lament the state of our world today? on a national level, it's been well documented over the years. The decline in those who identify as Christian in recent years, for the first time in our history, the percentage of self-identifying Christians has dipped finally below half. And the number of those who choose not to affiliate with any religion has grown to over 20%. It's a trend. And there's no signs of reversal, should the Lord intervene, of course. We should lament the shrinking number of professing professing Christians in our nation. 
course, it's our mission and it's our heart that all might come to know Christ for salvation. So, so we should grieve this news as Micah grieved the absence of Hesed people in his day. It's appropriate for us to grieve. But not only were the fields bare, there was something else going on here that Micah touches on. And this is our second point. It's the presence of bad fruit. So not only was there there no good fruit to pick. There was, there was an abundance of bad fruit. The prophet Isaiah uses similar uh, language that make, makes this very explicit. Listen to his words in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of, its, of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. As Micah's lament continues, he documents the grave reality of his nation. First notice that all their ways are evil. They plot evil in their hearts, verse 2. They do evil with their hands, verse 3. And they speak evil with their mouths and desire it in their souls. It is so corrupted to the very core. Now, notice something interesting here in verse 3 where it says, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. This literally reads in Hebrew as two hands to do evil. This is a way of saying that they were ambidextrous at doing evil. For many, doing tasks well with either hand is a skill that gives great advantage. When coaching soccer, I tell the kids to practice touching the ball with both feet because it will give them an advantage to be able to dribble, to pass, to shoot with either foot. The peoples of Micah's day were so good at doing evil that they had practiced it to the point of being ambidextrous at doing evil. They were so good at it. They could, do, they could use both hands. They could use both feet. Secondly, notice that every facet of society 
is included here. All, including the commoner, lie and wait for blood. Each hunts his neighbor with a net, verse 2 says. But the influential and the powerful are also included. The princes, the judges, uh, the great men are also guilty, verse 3 says. There is no group of people that can claim any moral high ground over any other group of people. It's corrupted to the core. But notice how far society really has eroded in Micah's day. He says you can't trust your neighbor. You can't trust your kids. You can't even trust your spouse. A man's enemies are the people of his own house, verse 6 says. Yesterday at Community Day, many people answered our community question on, on that whiteboard that asked, what gives you hope? And one of the top answers was family. It was mom. It was my kids. It's family that most people hope will stick by their side when the world goes sideways. But Micah says that not even family can be trusted in desperate times. When the moral fabric of our culture has eroded so severely, we can't even turn to those closest to us. This is an unnatural treachery. And so for all this, Micah says that their punishment has come. It has come. God explains uh, to uh, Abraham in the Old Testament you know, that the, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. You know, that's why they're not going into the promised land just yet. He's going to bring them back there, but he's waiting. He's patient. We have a patient God. Do you realize that? Uh, those, those wicked uh, Canaanites that lived in the land, God tolerated that for hundreds of years until it was complete, until finally it had come. And, and here we see that same language, finally you know, God has seen enough, and judgment is coming. This is the state of affairs in Micah's day. His nation that was planted by God to be a flourishing vineyard that blesses the world is actually a field that is barren of any good fruit. It's overrun by sour grapes. It's not a blessing to the world. It's become a curse to the world. There's no people of Hesed around, only people there who do injustice. No one who walks humbly with God. No one who loves kindness or does justice. In fact, they all do just the opposite. And now it's time for God's punishment to come. These are desperate times. When it seems as if your world is crashing down around you and there is no one you can trust. But the truth is, there is actually one person you can trust. And he's the only person you can trust. It's the owner of the vineyard. You can trust the owner of the vineyard. And this is our final point. Trust the owner of the vineyard. I love how Micah ends this lament when there is nowhere else to turn, he confidently declares, I will look to the Lord. 
I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. And of course, Jesus is the God of your salvation if you trust him to save you. And it's because of Jesus that God doesn't reject you. Even as sometimes your own family may do. But Jesus hears you. Your God hears you. And the reason is because Jesus cried the ultimate lament when he died on the cross. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a lament on a level we will never know. On a level that we will never understand. And let me explain why briefly. What makes separation so painful whether you're separated from a spouse or you've lost a child, what makes it so painful is two things. One is it's the depth of the relationship that you have with that person that you've been separated from. The depth, however deep that is, it makes it more painful when you're separated. And also the length of the relationship you have with that person that you've been separated from. So the depth and the length of that relationship makes it especially painful. But now think of this. The Bible tells us that God the Father and God the Son were together in perfect unity for all eternity, enjoying the love of each other. Now imagine the pain that comes when the Father rejected the Son on the cross because he bore our sin, separated, separated, and that's why Jesus' lament is the most heart-wrenching lament in all of history. The most painful. Some commentators have said that the, the, pain of the, cro- the physical pain of the cross paled in comparison to the, the heart-wrenching pain of being separated from his Father. Jesus looked to the Lord He waited for the God of his salvation, but God the Father did not hear him, but turned his ear away in rejection. And this is the very place that you need to look when you cry your lament. It's because this is the reason that we can look to the Lord and wait for the God of of your salvation and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will hear you. That God will never reject you. He will not turn his ear away from you. It's because Jesus took your failure. He took your failure to be the kind of fruit that God intended you to be and he placed it on Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he experienced the rejection that you all deserved. He experienced that in your place. He did this to save you from the punishment of God for your rejection of him. And because he did that and rose from the dead, you can know, you can know that God will never reject you. He will never reject you. 
And now you can stand before God in the midst of the most difficult and painful seasons of life and you can say to yourself, you can say to others, and you can say to God himself, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for God, for for the God of my salvation. God will hear me. My God will hear me. And you can know that God will always do this for you. He will never give up on you. Because Jesus didn't give up on you then. If he didn't give up on you then, when he suffered the most painful rejection in history, why would he give up on you now? He won't. Because if bearing the wrath of God on the cross didn't make him give up on you then, nothing will. Nothing will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you endured the most excruciating pain imaginable, something that none of us can ever fully fathom or understand. The pain of being separated from your Father. When you took upon yourself our sin and our guilt, our failures to be people of Hesed. And you experience separation from your father for the first time ever. The depth of that relationship of love between you and the father and the fact that it was from all eternity made it especially painful. For that, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you now that in the hardest of times we can look to our God We we can wait for the God of our salvation and we can know that you will hear us. Our God will hear us. He will not turn his ear from us. He will not reject us because you did not reject us then. You will never reject us now. May that give us such confidence and hope in these times when everything seems to be falling apart around us when our world lacks people of Hesed, when it's barren, when the fields are barren, we look around and we think, what hope is there? May we look to you. May we wait for you and know that you hear us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.